Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Mark Bittman is a prolific, best-selling author and award-winning journalist whose latest bestseller, Animal Vegetable Junk, a history of food from sustainable to suicidal, might just be the most important book of 2021. It's an honor to have him here on the podcast today. Mark, welcome. Great to be here. I love the book. It's a bold book. It's a dense book. And given where we are in the world today in 2021, it's a critically important book. And what I love is you go into great detail on the why, how we got here, the history of the food system. You have this great line in the book. You say, quote, the food system is complicated. I couldn't agree more. And so where I'm going to start, because there's so everyone should pick up the book because there's so many important facts that we need to get up to speed to answer the fundamental question of, of how we got here because to, to know where we want to go you have to understand how we got here uh, address those some of those systemic issues so could you briefly summarize i know this is a challenge <laughs> what's wrong what's wrong with our current food system I mean, no, uh, <laughs> because I'll miss stuff and I won't get other stuff right because I'm not the kind of person who memorizes stuff very well. But what's wrong? I mean, in short, what's wrong? A billion people on Earth are really hungry, or even starving. Two billion people have what you call metabolic syndrome. I call the other kind of malnutrition. That is, there's the kind of malnutrition we've known for thousands of years, which is not getting enough calories or nutrients. And now there's this weird kind of micronutrition, of malnutrition, where people are getting too many of the wrong calories and not enough nutrients. And that's started in the United States and has been exported elsewhere. So there's this sort of whole, the leading cause of death in the United States is chronic illness. The leading cause of chronic illness is diet-related, and diet-related chronic illness is a cause of our food system. So that's a real problem. The fact that we're exporting it, along with all the implements necessary and all the businesses necessary to, to make it happen to the rest of the world is a, is a form of neocolonialism that hasn't been seen before. The fact that it occupies, that producing the bad food that makes us sick occupies 60 or 80% of our agriculture is, I mean, people talk about food waste as if it's food falling off the back of the truck. Food waste is growing food that's not destined to be good food in the first place. That's food waste. And we have a great deal of that. What else? Five out of the 10 worst paying jobs in the United States some people say eight out of 10, but at least five out of 10 of the worst paying jobs in the United States are in the food system. So yesterday you had workers in 15 states or 15 cities striking for $15 an hour. Most of those workers were in food retail, fast food, food warehousing, and so on. And they were mostly earning $9 an hour. Tipped workers, servers in restaurants mostly, the federal minimum wage is $2.13 an hour. Agriculture, as it's currently put together, is a huge contributor to climate change. 
pesticides pesticides are basically chemical killers they sort of target the species that they're that they're after but as rachel carson documented 60 years ago not really so you're throwing these sort of things these chemicals that are designed to kill out into the environment what else soil's not being replenished so there's no guarantee we can continue at this pace of production. Like I said, I'm sure I'm going to miss a couple of things and I probably missed a couple of important things, but that's damning enough in a way. It is damning enough. And if I think about food and you talk about some of these things in the book, you know, to me, and I'm curious your take, some of the key drivers in the last call it 50 years, high fructose corn syrup, factory farming, us ignoring sugar, USDA ignoring sugar, corn subsidies, so if I think of, if we're going to talk about like sort of the the systemic mess, are those some of the key drivers? Because because if you're talking about you're talking about wages, I, I, I'm also trying to think about the consumer and accessibility with regards to nutritious food. Is the knock on health and wellness is you've got people out there who don't have access because it's expensive and. There is some blame, I think, to be laid on what we subsidize as a country, as a government. And then there's accessibility in terms of distribution and access, what's available in in your local store and so forth. But like, what are some of the key drivers thinking about it from a consumer standpoint? Are are those the ones I've outlined? How do you think about that? I mean, if at the very top is profit and inequality. So how is land distributed and what is it used for well it's distributed mostly to big farmers and it's used to produce bad food that can be highly profitable there is good food being being produced obviously but you have to be able to afford it so that's where the inequality comes in and it's as if instead of saying how can we build a food system that's going to make affordable food for as many people as possible that's nutritious and doesn't rip off workers or exploit the land or so on? That would be an interesting question to answer. But the question that gets answered is how can we make as much money off this stuff as we possibly can? So that's the, the story. Everything you said is true, but the primary drivers are profit and inequality. Those are, and, the, and we'll get into this later, I'm sure. But The reason that food is so much like other big issues is that you can't talk about food without talking about labor or race or inequality or in general or the environment. And if you pick any of those issues, you can't talk about them without talking about food. So there is this kind of like the system is screwed up. It's not just the food system. It's the economic system, the political system. So the reason to be optimistic if you want to be optimistic is that change can all happen together you're not going to fix climate change racism inequality blah 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 without changing food and this, you're not going to change food without addressing those issues too agreed it's, it's as you say it's complicated <laughs> it's complicated uh, but but in a way at least it means everything sort of moves together in the right direction or hopefully everything sort of moves together in the right direction so how much of this in your opinion because this could, I wouldn't say a rel, could be a relatively easy fix, but going back to corn subsidies and high fructose corn syrup, if we were to just zero in on that, 
in your estimation, how much of the problem, we were to fix that, if we if Congress could wave, wave their magic wand tomorrow, which we know is impossible, and say, all right, corn subsidies, high fructose corn syrup, we're done, we're going to start subsidizing uh, kale. <laughs> Unlikely, no, but... No, it's a huge... I mean, the thing is, it's magic wand territory. So, but let's look at let's look at two scenarios. One is, you can wave a magic wand. So fine, forty percent of the corn in Iowa is grown for ethanol. It doesn't even feed people. It's not even an efficient automobile fuel. It's completely stupid. So, get rid of the renewable fuel standards, and forty percent of that cropland has to find another place to go. If you get rid of what you're calling corn subsidies, you've got another, say, 40% of cropland that needs to find another place to go. You're right. That stuff, that cropland should be put toward growing real food for real people. As long as you're waving the magic wand, though, you need the other side of the incentive. You need to say to those farmers, we're going to make it as easy for you to grow real food as we have been for you to grow, as we have been making it for you to grow corn. We're going to make it easy because corn is, everything is geared toward growing corn and soybeans. That's the easy way to go. It's like if you have three options for how to go visit your mother, you can take four modes of public transportation. You can walk or you can drive. You're going to drive. So if you have three options for how you're going to run your farm and one you're being subsidized for, the grain elevator is right down the road, you have the equipment to do it, et cetera, you're gonna keep growing corn. You may not think it's the right thing to do, but it's the easiest, it's the most profitable. So it's not as simple as we're not gonna pay you to grow corn. It's gotta be at the same time, we're going to pay you or at least make it easy for you to transition into growing food that people eat. So as long as you're waving magic wands, that's the... Well, hey, it's 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 2021. It's a new year. I know we got off to a bumpy start, but I am, I am optimistic. But with that said, understood. Okay, corn, soybean. There are financial incentives there that make it relatively easy for farmers to say, like, yeah, this is what I'm doing. Is there a logical number two choice that is in terms of yield, in terms of financial incentives that if the government if there was enough pressure in the government where they decided, all right, maybe we need to explore something else beyond corn and soybeans, does another, does something else come to mind as a way to utilize the farmland we have? Because also we have another, there's another, the book is so dense and I love that there's some great statistics and some of them are scary. Another unbelievable statistic, 5% of the farms sell 75% of the, the United States' agricultural products. Holy cow. It's like, to me, this is like Facebook, Google, and Apple, but in farming, as we think, or in Amazon, like, like our big tech problem is also like a big farm problem. Yeah, it is like that. There's no number two crop. The number two crop is, it's monoculture that is growing one crop at a time versus polyculture that is growing many crops at a time. It's not like corn is inefficient or soybeans are better. It's the whole notion of growing 3,000 acres of one crop at a time and growing it with machinery, chemicals, denuded soil. I mean, the soil is effectively stripped of its nutrients and then injected with precisely the fertilizer that's going to work for that particular crop at that particular time. 
that's not real farming. That's some kind of techno creation of some kind of techno crop that's going to turn into techno food, which is junk food, basically. So it's a bigger it's a bigger question because you want to be growing many things on small ish plots of land. I'm not saying everybody needs micro gardens, although that would be fine, or it's one part of the answer, but 50 acres of tomatoes and 50 acres of corn and 50 acres of lettuce and 50 acres of kale and 50 acres of this until you get to 500 or a thousand acres for a medium sized farm that's manageable by normal people with some machinery, but it's not, it's not a dynamo. It's not a behemoth. So is that what you talk about agroecology, which I, I love the term? Well, look, no, anyone who tells you they know what the future is going to look like this is wrong. Everybody's wrong. So all you can say is these are the necessary or the, all I can say, maybe there are people smarter. All I can say is these are the kind of intelligent first steps that we ought to be taking. And when we get past those first steps, we can look at what the second steps are. So I can't say, here's what it's going to look like in, in 10 or 20 years. I can say we need to be growing more diverse crops. We need to be making real food affordable to more people. We need to concentrate on nutrition. We need to regulate that is limit the amount of junk food that's produced and sold. We need to regulate how animals are raised or grown and processed and sold. We need to make sure that our children eat well and learn about food at a young age. So start with those five or six different things and say, okay, these are all pretty obvious. I'm not saying anything revolutionary here. Start with these few things see what they bring, what has the best results, what has the sort of most meager results, or what seems more long-term, what can give us good effects short-term, and then move on from there. You can't say we're going from this place to 10 years from now. In 10 years, we're gonna have agroecological regenerative farming. We hope that in two years, we're doing things better, and two years later, we're doing things better than that. Agroecology, to answer that specific question, is, just in case it's not totally obvious, a combination of agriculture. And ecology has kind of come to mean the science of recognizing that all things are interrelated. So if you see that all things are interrelated in agriculture and in the environment in general, it's sort of why these questions can't be answered simply, really. Well, you mentioned agroecology and you talk about factory farming in the book and uh, specifically there's a lot of you go into great detail around chicken and, and i'm curious what is the role of livestock in the food system and talk a little bit about i think our listeners are familiar with factory farming and how flawed it is and it's got some issues to say the least but ro what role does livestock play just timely the other day bill, bill gates wrote a book about climate change various opinions about that book but he's he spoke publicly about how uh, bullish he was on essentially fake meat which begs the question of the role of livestock with regards to the food system well bill gates with all due respect is a technocrat so technocrats look for technical solutions to everything and fake meat is a technical solution a technological solution to a real problem and well said <laughs> humans and pre 
pre-humans, pre-hominids, or pre-sapien hominids, I guess would be correct, have eaten meat since they developed the ability to chew it. The apes, many of the apes that lived in the trees had jaws that were designed to eat leaves and woody shrubs and things like that. But since at least 200,000 years ago, when humans came down from the trees, they began eating meat at first opportunistically and then through hunting and cooking and finally through agriculture. All of that's proven. Does that mean that humans have to eat meat? No. Does it mean that humans want to eat meat? Probably. And does it mean that humans are going to eat meat for the near future? Yeah. Does it mean that we have to grow 50 or 100 billion or whatever it is animals in torturous captivity every year to satisfy our meat cravings? No, but that's also in a way, that's part of the corn, soybean, monoculture, industrial ag system that you were talking about a few minutes earlier, because a lot of that corn and soybeans especially is grown to feed animals who are kept in horrible conditions, raised scientifically, slaughtered and sold to us in supermarkets at incredibly cheap prices. Break that chain at some point, make it more difficult to grow corn, for example, or make it more difficult for animals to be raised in horrific captivity, and you reduce the amount of meat that we eat. Do you reduce it to zero? I don't think that's necessary, but you need to reduce it by, if you're talking about Americans, Americans should probably be eating 90% less meat, 90% fewer animal products. That's a big deal, but that's not being a vegan. That's eating a sort of appropriate amount of meat. We should also be eating 90% less sugar. That's not being a person who doesn't eat sugar. That's being someone who eats a moderate amount of sugar. It's, again, it's not going to happen in two weeks or even two years, but these are the directions we need to go in, I think. I agree. I don't know that fake helps, by the way. If fake, fake, if fake meat helped, meat consumption numbers would be going down, and they're not. So I think we've just added another kind of like junky food to the mix that gives you an excuse to feel good about yourself while you're actually not changing your diet at all. Agreed. And so I love what you said earlier. You talk about agroecology, and I think we need to have a more of a holistic view on our ecosystem and understand that everything is related. So I go back to you're painting a picture of I'm growing some tomatoes, I'm growing some lettuce. Maybe there's also some cattle there. And, and this segues to the conversation around regenerative agriculture. And can you talk about that with regards to more nutritious soil, better for the planet versus... I think factory farming's terrible. You've got a ton of animals in terrible conditions pumping out food that's not good for you. And because of that, if you think of the demand, there's the demand for corn and soybeans. And so those two things, those two big problems are interconnected. And if we were able to realize that moving toward a agroecology, I love the term, it, is not only better for the planet, but probably better for overall health. And I, I, from what I understand, I think we can still feed everyone in America. I mean, we're already producing more than enough calories to feed everyone in the world. So that's not really an issue. And, and remember, 40% of the corn crop in Iowa is going to produce ethanol. That's not feeding anybody. 
And all of these calories that are going to feed animals are certainly not being used efficiently since you need three or five or 10 times as many calories to put into an animal as you get out of it. So if you're feeding that food to people directly, your net savings in calories could be a thousand percent. So all of that is by way of saying there is, you, regenerative agriculture is a kind of earlier generation or earlier evolution of the, agroecology is a bit of a more sophisticated term. We can call it anything you want. What it basically means is how do we farm in harmony with the earth? How do we produce food that's good for us? How do we reduce animal suffering? And it's true that animals have a role to play farming there. If you look at the scale is much different, of course, but if you look at the development of the American Plains, you see buffalo grass that served to feed bison and you see bison that served to feed um, the indigenous people who hunted them. There were many other things going on but that was a system that was sustainable. It was a system that could endure. There are agricultural systems that allow for animals on the land in order to use their manure, their products. I mean, eggs, milk, et cetera, dairy are all valuable products that don't involve necessarily involve torturing and killing animals. There are ways to do this, but they're not, maybe we should talk for five minutes, three minutes about the industrialization of agriculture and what happened in the 19th and early 20th centuries, or really even starting in the 15th century. But I'll leave it to you if you want to go. Yeah, there. let's go there. I mean, until say 1500 or 1300, most food was grown on land near where it was eaten. A lot of it was eaten by the people who grew it. Most people were farmers, not everybody, but most people grew food for themselves, their neighbors, their towns, perhaps their rulers. There was a tribute or a tax or whatever. Still, they were growing enough for themselves. The first, there were a number of things that made things more challenging, including the land enclosures, which basically meant that land that had been held in common that peasants could use to grow food was taken away from them. So it became more difficult for peasants to grow their own food. And especially in Europe, things moved closer and closer to a cash economy. People were growing food in order to sell it and buy food from other people. And that's different from growing food for yourself and your family. And so that accelerated and the Europeans sort of ran out of land and were forced to explore and discovered the Americas. We know the genocide and the land theft and everything else that happened as a result of that. But what also happened as a result of that was increasing amounts of let's grow crops to sell and then we'll worry about how to buy food for ourselves. And so first wheat and then corn and then later soybeans became, I mean, there are others, rice, cotton, et cetera. But in the United States, it was first wheat and later corn that were the biggest. And what happened was new farmers would grow wheat, sell that wheat, buy whatever they needed to buy from smaller farmers. But the farms that were growing and consolidating were forever becoming more monocultural. They would grow, increasingly grow one crop. And in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, two or three things happened. One is machinery came along that made it even easier to do that. So machinery is focused, like a machine that makes a shoe can't make a rifle. 
And a machine that's geared toward a corn crop is not going to be good for growing broccoli, tomatoes, apples, da-da-da-da-da. It's growing a corn crop. Artificial fertilizer was developed, which meant you could stay on the same land and grow the same crop year after year. That's new. And patented seeds, hybridized seeds were developed that were geared to that soil, geared to that farmer. Here's what I'm growing. It's this number corn seed with this machinery and this pesticide and this fertilizer. I have a system and I'm going to do it the rest of my life. And so what you have is this amazing, unpredictably big surplus of those very few crops. Now, what are you going to do with them? I mean, no one's going to sit around eating bread all day long. So the wheat, the corn, the soybeans and so on were in the 20th century begun to be fed to animals in confinement. And we just talked about that a little bit and converted into new kinds of foods, which mostly are junk foods, beginning with white bread, which is the least nutritious form of it's the opposite. You, you take whole grain, which is something that has supported humans for 10,000 years, and you convert it to something that's bad for you in the form of white bread, which is effectively a cookie in a different form, just like breakfast cereal is a cookie in a different form. So beginning with white bread, you have this evolution of thousands, tens of thousands of varieties of junk food, which to go back to where you and I first started a half an hour ago, are non-nutritive foods that make people sick. So agriculture is, eating is an agricultural act. We eat what they grow. It's, you can't eat, if you have enough money, you can seek out the best possible food. But if everybody had that kind of money, that kind of accessibility to the best possible food, we'd run out of the best possible food in two days. Someone's gotta eat all that junk. And the people who eat all that junk tend to be with people with less money, less less transport. I'm trying. What's the word for moving around? Less ability to move around, less accessibility. So, well, I think so much comes back to subsidies. What we, what we subsidize, we we make a conscious choice in determining what is inexpensive. And there's the great line from Ron Finley, the gorilla gardener. I'm, heard, I'm sure you've heard this line in South Central LA where he says, you know, yeah, more people get killed by drive-throughs than they do drive-bys. And if I, want, if I want an organic tomato, I gotta drive 45 minutes. So he went on his whole thing. I'm gonna grow my own produce. I'm like, that, that's just, it's horrific. Right, right. Look, this, the average subsidy to big white farmers is over a million dollars. The average subsidy to small black farmers, of whom there are very few, but enough to do a statistical look, the average subsidy to small black farmers is $50,000. Wow. So that's 20 to 1. 96% of land is held by white people in big acreage. 98% of farmland is held by white people. There was, during in the course of this mechanization, industrialization, whatever you want to call it, there was also consolidation. And what happened was the farms that had been given, the farmland that had been given away by the federal government, another form of subsidy, and again, given away almost entirely to white men, that land was consolidated gradually but steadily from the day one, from 1862 until now, and farms grew bigger and bigger and fewer and fewer. And the bigger farms are, of course, controlled either by corporations or by individuals. And the individuals 
the big family farms, as you might call them, are almost all controlled by whites. So it's like yeah. this whole. It, and I, I will caveat. I will caveat this with that I am not a Bill Gates conspiracy theorist at all. I, but I do think it's interesting that now he's America's biggest farmland owner. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Also, I don't know what that's about. I think it's probably that he's a smart investor. I hope so. Land is never going to go away. No, it, it's not. But so okay, we've talked. We spent a lot of time on land, but oh, look, there's the sea. And you also talk about the blue revolution. So can you get us up to speed about our what our problems are with fish and what we're, what we're doing there? It's very tricky. It's trickier than anything because there's still a wild resource out there. I mean, there's no one's eating wild birds. It's not like <laughs> you can buy a farm-raised chicken or you can buy a wild chicken. You can't buy a wild chicken. You might be able to go hunt a wild bird, but that's not but you can buy a farm-raised salmon or you can buy a wild salmon. And the question is, which is more sustainable and which, which looks more towards the future? And up until very recently, the so-called blue revolution replicated many of the mistakes of agriculture on land. So antibiotics, overcrowding, pollution, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that some combination of farm-raised fish and good management of wildlife fish can make it so that we can eat fish regularly and sustainably. And I think that might happen in the relatively near future. In the meantime, a billion poor people on Earth depend on fish as their primary source of protein. So it's important to make sure that those small fishers maintain stocks that are adequate to their needs. And that's, some, that's about wild fishery management. Farm-raised fish until recently has been a problem in terms of, largely in terms of antibiotic use and pollution of local waters. There are other concerns also, but I honestly think there's better farm-raised fish down the road, but we still have to be careful about, it's in a way it's the same as if you found a way of making animals held, raising animals in captivity kinder, more humane, you still have the issue of how do you feed them? Because the conversion ratio, which means how much food do you, how many pounds of food do you feed a fish or a cow to get a pound of food out? That's something that has to be paid attention to because you have to find that food somewhere. So if you can find ways to feed fish relatively small, have them have fish have a favorable conversion ratio being fed plants. That's way preferable to having fish who are fed other fish because it's the same thing. You could be eating the smaller fish. Westerners with money would rather eat farmed salmon, but people in Asia without money need to eat the anchovy and mackerel and sardine and whatever that you're using to feed the farmed salmon. So it can't be a system where, well, we get to eat better while other people eat worse. That's not a, a forward thinking system. So, hey, at a personal level, there's nothing like wild salmon from Russ and Daughters here in New York on a Sunday. From Alaska, but yeah. And I'll do that. I'll do the rye bread. But uh, <laughs> sometimes we get a bagel. Everyone needs a good bagel. So in terms of, we also have a problem with kids school lunch. It's egregious. 
And I don't want to be too much of a Debbie Downer. You talk about uh, in the book some hopeful examples of people trying to, to do this right and having some success. So can you talk about school lunch and give us some hope there? You know, Alice Waters, who founded Shapenese in Berkeley, has been saying for, I don't know, 20 years that we ought to build school curriculums around food. And it's not a terrible idea because you can teach anything by teaching food. You can certainly teach math and history and any other subject you name. The point is to bring food into the classroom, both as a subject and as a way of showing kids where food comes from, what real food means, what good food is, as opposed to go stand online, give someone your debit card, and you'll get your daily taco. There are countries doing that right, and chief among them is Japan, where the food is local, traditional, it's talked about, the kids serve themselves, they clean up after themselves, there's a lesson around food, and so on. And that's the kind of direction. It's not just that the food has to be better, although that would be a terrific start, but it's also that the food has to be considered, the food has to be valued, the food has to be discussed. This is true of grown-ups too. We don't know where food comes from. We don't know how it's produced. If we knew how those animals that we eat so much of were raised, we wouldn't be eating them because it's way too horrific for people to bear. That's why it's basically kept secret. So I always say, if you want a generation of healthy 40-year-olds, you have to start with a generation of four-year-olds who are learning about food, what food really is, how it's raised, what makes it real and good. And you have to develop good eating habits in those four-year-olds because everybody over the age of 20 knows how hard it is to change the way that you eat. Everybody who says, oh, well, I'm not gonna eat as much sugar, I'm not gonna eat as many animal products, I'm not gonna eat as much junk. All of those people know how difficult it is to make those kinds of changes. That's why there's a giant weight loss industry and diet industry and why there's fad diets and why everybody's always complaining about how they can't stick to their diet and so on. It's because you learn how to eat when you're four or two, and changing that is really a challenge. So you mentioned Japan. I'm curious, is it Japan or is there a country out there who's got their act together with their food system that, that we can learn from? I always think it's much easier to, to look at another country and try to model what they're doing than try to reinvent the wheel. Is there someone else out there? Are there people we can learn from? Well, of course, Americans are not great, or we as a country are not great about learning from other countries. Um, <laughs> but look, we instituted seatbelt laws really early on. The seatbelt laws, simple as they are, you get in your car and you, you go like that, they save like 50,000 lives a year. That's not insignificant. We can institute any kind of public health measures we have the will to do, and there are countries who are doing different things. Japan, no country has it all together, but Japan has the school lunch thing together. Brazil, for a time, was feeding poor people in communal kitchens really well, 100,000 people a day, which is not the percentage of their population that needed to be fed, but it was a model for how to feed a percentage of their population. Chile, has the best labeling laws on the planet. So junk food, there's, I'm sure everybody knows that you, there's a system of labeling food sort of with red, yellow, and green lights. Well, Chile developed red, yellow, green, and black. 
and the black label means your food, you can't advertise basically, you can't sell to children and so on. So there's no Tony the Tiger in Chile anymore. There's none of that kind of stuff. So Chile has a very advanced labeling law. Mexico has a very advanced tax on soda and junk food, a national tax on soda and junk food. Each of these things is worth looking at, studying, trying, and each of them can have an impact on building a better food system. What the US does well, let's think. We have a system called food stamps or SNAP that goes some way towards feeding poor people. It's far from ideal, but many countries don't even have that. We have farms that do things the right way, very few of them, but we have models for how to do things well, places where we could look and say, oh, if there were 10,000 of these kinds of farms instead of 10, we'd have a really interesting food system going on here. What else do we do well? Our food labeling is has made progress. It's not bad. Our food safety system is is really good as it happens. Our fish management system is pretty good. So there are ways in which we do things well. We don't regulate how animals are raised well. We don't recognize the impact. We don't regulate the impact of agriculture on environment. I mean, we practically ignore that. As you've said several times, we subsidize all the wrong food. We really don't go very far toward making good food more accessible. I mean, there's a zillion ways in which we could improve things simply and easily. So what was the biggest surprise in doing your research for this book? Well, I think there were two. One is one was sort of the overwhelming prevalence of junk food. Like the thing I said before, because people will tell you, oh, well, you have to make the right choice but there's a limited amount of right choice to be made because if 60%, and that's a rough estimate, but say 50 to 80% of the calories in our food system are junk food calories, they're calories that don't nourish you, then someone's got to eat that 60% of food. So once the other 40% say is gone, all that's left is 60%. So you may not eat 60% of your calories from junk food, but to the extent that you eat less, it means someone else is eating more. That stuff is out there. That's what we produce. That's what we as a country eat. An average of 60% of our calories are not good for us. That was probably the most surprising thing, but that's just a statistic. The more surprising or equally surprising thing was that I felt optimistic at the end of the, at the, end of the day. And I, maybe that's because I was finishing the book in the middle of the COVID quarantine when things looked just their absolute bleakest. And as you've noticed, I included some stuff about COVID in there just to feel like I was current. But as I was finishing the book, the really finishing, like going to the printer, the election was about to happen and things were looking good. And I just started to feel like all of these things that that need to be addressed, not just food again, but income inequality and economic justice and racism and environmental justice and climate change and da da da. All of that stuff can begin to be addressed pretty simply by a decent federal government. And we've seen that happen. So food is not that high on this administration's list, but if you are addressing climate change, you're addressing agriculture for sure. 
And if you're addressing those things, I mean, the, the Biden administration would like to improve the minimum wage and the food system. And that's an important part of improving the food system. So I feel like change in the right direction is starting to happen. And you can only make the big change by starting to make whatever change is achievable. And I think we're going to see that. So I know optimistic might be a little strong, but I'm hopeful. I feel good. Well, you mentioned the administration. I've had David Kessler, who's the vaccine, he's on the heads up the vaccine task force on this podcast. And he he gets the systemic problem. He talks about junk food and and inequalities. So he gets it. I I know he sort of over has a different scope in the administration, but he fundamentally understands the the health issues we we were facing. So pointing Kessler, Kessler is great. He was the best FDA commissioner of my lifetime. So yeah, he's, he's so going back to your sense of optimism for someone listening right now what can we all do we, we have a lot of you know, great like-minded mission-driven people listening right now who, who genuinely want to make change so w- what can we all do i mean i think there's i think there's three things broadly speaking One is if you have money, give it to organizations doing good work. So we can post on your website or whatever, a good list of three or five organizations that I think are worth donating to. Any any come to mind right now? Well, I like Heal Food Alliance. There are various coalitions of small farmers that are good. It's better to write them, get it organized and write them down. But that's one. Two is support models of things models of ways to do things right. So there's a thing called Good Food Purchasing Program, which makes sure that cities buy food that meets certain standards. It's produced by workers who are not being paid slave wages. It's relatively local. It may be organic, or at least it doesn't use pesticides. Those kinds of things. That's a program that's established in a dozen cities around the country. It should be established in every city around the country, that kind of thing, or or good buying programs by school systems or supporting your local farmer, joining a CSA, shopping at a farmer's market, that kind of stuff. And the third thing, and maybe the most most important thing is to be is to recognize that this is a political issue. And that means running for office or supporting the right people who are running for office people who understand that food is an important issue and that changing food is going to help change everything that really matters. And that means, you know, so if you have money, it's easy enough to give money. If you don't have money and you have energy or time or both, then you should be trying to support people who are doing good work. It's kind of boils down to that. I'll come back to government because I think it's interesting. I think, you know, I saw something last week i think i forget which which news network it was but essentially the 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 takeaway was climate change politically is now it is not a republican or a democrat issue now it's an issue for both parties for different reasons and which is a which is a good thing i think it was in the context of biden's agenda and what's going to go through and not through and so forth but republican both sides of the aisle want to move climate change legislation forward for different reasons. Doesn't matter how they get get there, but we're getting there. So in terms of government and issues, what are the issues we should be paying attention to? And 
who out there, who has office, who do you think gets it that people can, you know, follow on social media or just like get up to speed because it's a rabbit hole. It's confusing. And you see some of these bills. If you ever look at it, it's like, oh, God, I don't even know what to follow here, what's packed in. So how how do we get educated as food? On food right now, the best people, the best person is Cory Booker, New Jersey Senator Booker. Um, But he's, it's not a but. He's become the representative in the Senate of people who care about food, of other senators who care about food. So Gillibrand, your senator, um, Elizabeth Warren, and a few others have have sort of banded with Booker to present progressive food legislation. So Booker has an anti-CAFO bill, an anti-factory farming for animals bill. That's really good. And Booker began a justice for black farmers bill that was co-sponsored by Gillibrand and Warren. That's also a really good bill that is going to wind up with some good legislation in the debt reconciliation bill, which is also the COVID relief act. And it is confusing as all hell. So if you're asking who to follow and how, I mean, I would recommend following me. I'd recommend going to Mark because <laughs> um, I hope we're staying on top of that. But AOC is really good to follow. Cory Booker is really good to follow. Elizabeth Warren is really good to follow. Those are all all good legislators to follow. I think any Republicans? Organ- I'm curious for those. Those are Democrats. I'm curious, like any Republicans get it as well. No, I mean, I, I don't No, They don't. And with all due respect, I don't see Republicans moving forward on climate change. A lot of this stuff is about income inequality and Republicans are dead set against reducing the amount of income inequality in this country. And you can't If you're going to fight income inequality, then you're not fighting for better food. You're not fighting for reducing the impacts of climate change. You're fighting for profitability for corporations. And yeah, I don't see it. I mean, I can't. There may well be a progressive Republican congressperson on food. I don't know who that is, but that person is standing alone, I can assure you. So... In terms of this conversation, I'll go back to 21. It's a year of hope. At least I think it's a year of hope. I do think there's, I'm sure that there are some Republicans who get it. Maybe they're not as vocal as they need to be. But I am optimistic in the fact that apparently climate change, there is some uh, bipartisan support for that. It's a real issue. I think it's hard to ignore. With that said, where do you think this conversation is going to be a year from now, two years from now? I know no one can predict the future. But if you had to venture a guess, or, or at least where do you want it to be? What do you think is uh, pragmatic? Well, I think we will have seen some progress towards making farmland available for people who want to farm it and farm it well. Uh, especially BIPOC people would be great. I and mean, I think that's an issue that's understood in in at every level of, of administration. And I think we'll see some action on that. I think we'll see increasing action, mostly on local levels, on making good food available to people who couldn't afford it previously. I think we've seen experiments where food stamps, SNAP dollars were worth more at farmers markets to buy fruits and vegetables than they were elsewhere. Those experiments work. 
So that would be good. I think we're going to see, but I don't think we're going to see the kind of change that you want to see, that I'd like to see, where in two years we're saying subsidies for corn have been transferred to subsidies for growing lots of real food. I don't know that I see that in the next two years. I see more, a little bit of regulation on junk food, a little bit of regulation on CAFOs, maybe some progress on getting land into the hands of good farmers, that kind of stuff. Agreed. I am optimistic. Look, I, I think every great movement starts from the ground up. And I think due to COVID, and COVID has been horrific, metabolic health and inequality has come to the forefront. And I do think that consumers vote with their dollars. And I think it's top of mind for, for a lot of people. Hey, I need to do better here in terms of what, what I'm putting into my mouth, how I'm taking care of myself. And I do think some of, you know, big CPG plays a role here and they are by far from perfect, but there are some big companies out there who are starting to acquire some of these little guys who have great, better for you or best for you products. And so I think it's going to take a while and I go back to the power of voting for your, voting with your dollars. And with that said, it's easier to vote with your dollars when you have to, uh, when you have less dollars to spend. <laughs> but I, I think we're going to get there. And I think to your point, the government plays a large role here and they know the government doesn't really react to our, what we're buying. They have a whole other set of rules, but they, if you're in Congress, you're, you're constantly running for reelection every two years. So. I'm hopeful. Yeah, we can. Well, I love the book, Animal Vegetable Junk. I I, I hope, you know, Barbara Kingsolver would, uh, (laughs) I I love the play on it. It, it, The history of food from sustainable to suicidal. That's the subtitle. It's like that. that's the state where we're at, but I'm optimistic. You're optimistic. And I wholeheartedly believe that we can make the change we want to see in the world with regards to food. So everyone pick up the book. And uh, Mark, thank you for all the good work you're doing. Great chat. Thank you. If you're like Mark, if you're like me, if you really want to change the world, I encourage you to check out our landmark functional nutrition coaching program, which gives you access to 19 of the world's top doctors and health coaching experts. Seven of them are New York Times bestselling authors. Over 24 modules, 192 video lessons, 548 pages of study guides, and nearly 30 hours of instruction. Our incredible experts will not only give you a rock-solid foundation in functional nutrition, they'll also teach you how to start your own wellness and be the change you want to see in this world. Go to mindbodygreen.com coaching and enter code MARK300 to get $300 off. 